Testing, testing, testing. Can you hear me? This is Audible Autism. Hello there, listeners. This is Audible Autism, interesting people and interesting facts. This is Odai here, and as you can see from the title of this episode, this is a sort of a, one of a more topical episodes for the podcast, and this is one that I wanted to to do. The idea behind this one came from a story in 2016 regarding autistic carer Charles Kinsey in America being shot in the leg by police trying to deal with a situation for an autistic person he was taking care of. But there's also the British Home Office's attempt to deport Azim Brown, who had been in the UK since he was four, and they were trying to deport him to Jamaica, which was a country he had no real history with. So there's been more than a few cases involving autistic individuals and dealing with the Metropolitan Police that have mostly gone under the radar or, you know, tend to be sidelined in this predicament. And today's guest is somebody who is very knowledgeable in this subject and had to deal with this himself. So um, this is Chris Hilliard. Hello, Chris. Hello. And Chris has had his own dealings and as far as i know still ongoing correct um not so much with the map but with with the broader police and with the broader criminal justice system yeah i'm still got a hand in that uh and also internationally uh working on involving situations um before we get to the topic at hand i think like most with all of our guests that we Tend to have for an episode. We tend to have for an episode. I feel like to get a better understanding of you, I'd like to ask that question of how you came to learn or discover, however, that you, you know, you was autistic yourself. So I was about the age of eight. School and I weren't gelling particularly well, and I I was diagnosed in in primary school. Um, I was then moved to a school with a with what was termed a special unit. Uh, where I significantly improved, uh, then I was actually the test case for somebody with autism. At that point, it was called Asperger's, um, being in a mainstream education in a high school for, for Cheshire. So I was the test bunny. What was that like being the test bunny, if you remember, so to speak? Well, the school is fantastic. The school has actually recently run, won awards on continuing to build on that experience. It was interesting. Um, all the teachers knew my face because they had an inset day on just me, um, which means you cannot get away with anything. But it meant that I knew I had a level of support. It meant that I knew that the head of learning support knew what I would need it meant that we had those discussions with parents, with school to kind of build on some of those, some of those challenges and, you know, create a pathway. 
I certainly would have wanted to go to a non-mainstream education school. Um, I've met people who had that experience and who have had either a negative or a positive one, but it just the social aspect and the community aspect of a larger school is something I found really important in my personal development, um, even even ignoring the, the mainstream education aspect. I'm from the other side. I went to a mainstream school and just hearing that kind of thing is like, oh, I, I kind of wish I had that. And also, I've always been a bit of a sciencey kid, so I always like, you know, like I'm game for taking part in experiments like that. So that would have been something. It was it was definitely an experience. It's definitely paved the way for more people to go into mainstream education. At the, at the time, the council didn't even think it was going to be easy, never mind possible. So being able to prove them wrong and being able to open that door was was a fantastic opportunity and something that I really grew from. So um, to get to kind of preface the main topic, in regards to, let's say, uh, interactions with the police or any kind of enforcement in like mainstream news or whatever, certain individuals, I would say my, definitely myself included as a black British person, um, we face a higher chance of possibly having to, you know, deal with discrimination or being stopped and searched, or you know, having to deal with interactions with the police that other that others don't. So I bring this up in regards to autistic people because um, uh, there's certain high pressure situations which the police are meant to deal with that they might not be equipped for or in certain cases in a lot of cases with autistic people they may not know the exact way they're meant to interact with them and one thing can lead to another and it can just lead to situations getting worse to a certain extent police are trained to look out for unusual body language, unusual behavior, um, you know, not looking at people in the eyes as a sign of, of, you know, not telling the truth, for example, which is a terrible, terrible way to look at it. But that means that us walking down the street, you know, shuffling, playing with something in our pockets, having music on quite loud, not looking at people in the eyes, you know, doing all of those things makes it kind of, in some respects, more likely that the police are going to take an interest as well. For for no reason that, that they would realize, it's not something that they're consciously picking on us, but they're taught a specific way to, to profile, you know, to look mm-hmm. at somebody and go, is this person going to be a problem? Is this person somebody I should be looking at? And if they're having an off day and you're having an off day, then that leads to a potential stop. That leads to a potential problem point. And mm-hmm. we're going to be like, well, it, I'm just doing what I normally do. We're then going to be socially awkward on top of that, which you know is going to lead to a load of anxiety, which then they're going to pick up on. And it's just going to spiral. Um, yes. And the horrific thing about it is, is neither party has any intention to do anything, you know, to, to mistake anything in any way, shape or form. But, you know, if somebody doesn't take control of that, if somebody doesn't like relax about it and doesn't go through the right steps and take the right, right 
precautions, then mm-hmm. that that's something that can go badly wrong and, and has in the past, whether that's, you know, an autistic boy with his, with his I think it was grandparent, getting dragged out of a swimming pool um, to a number of other issues. Um, and this is known not just for people with autism, but for people with other impairments, with, with mental health issues. Um, there's there's a reason that that there are a number of, of incidents that aren't necessarily caused by anything other than a police officer's intuition gone slightly awry. Listeners, just to let you know, uh, me and Chris were sort of talking about the issues in regards to funding, isn't that right? And how it sort of not just affect it not just affects autistic individuals with uh, you know with how the police deal with them but also because of a certain level of a lack of training the due to defunding the police go in there essentially blind isn't that right i mean this is the general thing as soon as you take away a large number of police numbers as much as I understand the perspective on defunding the police. In the UK, we had quite a stripped-back police force anyway. When you start mm-hmm. removing those officers, then the other officers have to take up the same amount of work and then get no time and no resources for training. So as somebody who used to go in and train you know, people in the criminal justice system, you saw a plummet of forces being able to take up our, our resource, even if we were, even if we were giving that time for free. That means that all of a sudden, you don't have a load of officers who have a level of experience to walk in that door and have some understanding. You don't have a load of triple nine call handlers who necessarily have that understanding immediately to be able to calm you down, take the relevant information in, in a way that would be most accessible to you. And that's not to say they don't do an excellent job, you know, regardless, and they all try and work as hard as they can, but. You know, as soon as you take away all of that funding, you take away all of their time to learn, then you're going right. to get a really stripped down, you know, perspective from the police because that's that's all they can do. It's funny you bring up defunding because as I also brought up with you briefly, it's um, it's funny because our friends across the pond have been having a lot of discussions in regards to defunding the police themselves, but it's. It's a very, it's a different kind of defunding and sort of conversation to what's going on in Britain, right? Because of what the police in America have direct access to and the kind of funding they have. We're we're talking in the in the US, the police having the majority of of a city's funding, um, in comparison to the UK, whereas we're going to have a lot more social care aspect to that funding. Um, in the US, they're talking about defunding the police and replacing a significant portion of it with mental health care, with you know community support, with social care structures, uh, and even with you know you know teenage clubs. So they're not on the street. The thing is that while we've been defunding the police, we haven't just been defunding the police. We've been defunding our mental health services. We've been defunding our social care. We've been defunding councils and you know closing libraries so all of the things that they're saying you know we need to defund the police and then move that funding over to here we've erased that too um so we're Mm -hmm. immediately in this kind of really bad you know position where 
a load of the solutions that we could fall back on with a lessened police force aren't necessarily there. And other other you know groups are trying to take up some of that slack. So there have been discussions around um, fire brigades taking you know helping the the ambulance service with some of their calls and things. But again, these are kind of stopgap measures rather than a really thought out solution and it's it's kind of disturbing whereas in america they're really trying to think about how they move forward in a structural way you've been brought on here because uh you have your own story and as far as i know still ongoing saga in terms of dealing with the police yourself so um chris if you would like to take the center stage and explain what's what how it happened and what's been going on then sure fire so it starts off back in 2009 really uh with the student protests around tuition fees so it starts off with the nus with their demonstrations down in london trying to get the pledges signed by nick clegg and others to actually vote against tuition fees incoming um, this is before this is like a year before the big student f- uh, protests in 2010, and I was actually an NUS rep at the time, so I was sent down by my university in Teesside to actually go and talk to MPs and get them to sign the pledges. Um, I was also there when Nick Clegg spoke to the NUS conference and you know basically pleaded us to kind of vote for for the Lib Dems to stop the tuition fees incoming. Um, so when the Lib Dems get, got elected and rapidly changed their position, I, like the rest of the student body, was kind of frustrated by this. So I got involved in, in some of the protests in Manchester, uh, and I ended up getting on a coach with Manchester University students uh, and my brother down to London. And that was on the 9th of December, 2010. So, you know, 10 years, well, 10 and a half years have passed. Yes. What we've, what we went into was, first of all, quite a jolly protest. Um, if anybody's ever been to a protest, it's almost like a party atmosphere to start off with. Um, then, you know, we marched through the streets. We end up getting into the main square getting to the main square outside Parliament Square, which we're going to loop past and go down past Downing Street. But it turns out that somebody hadn't brought a banner up to the front of the of the demonstration. This is something that we learned quite a bit later. So there was a backing up of lots of protesters. And at this point, the police were told um, from from their, their silver commander that they could let the students into Parliament Square because they were worried about a, a Hillsborough-style crush incident. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is that that was never released to any of the protesters who were later arrested. That information was always withheld, and it was always put forward that we forced our way in. Um, in fact, when I actually asked for the command logs, which are a transcript of, of what was said over that over that radio, uh, they actually redacted that, so we couldn't use it. The only reason that we actually got access to that 
was because they gave us a piece of video footage later as evidence that actually had that command radio sign over it, um, and they'd never listened to it. It's one of those things, you know, you get a, a piece of helicopter footage and you're looking for yourself in it. You know, in this case, my mum was looking for me in it because I was, I was struggling to watch it. Um, and then, you know, she, you know, nobody ever thinks to listen to the audio. You always have it on mute because it's helicopter footage. I mean, you know, there can't be anything useful on there. It turns out this, mm-hmm. this command radio chat was on there. Um, that was one of the many, many interesting things that the police police did was, you know, hide literally useful evidence. Um, and one of the nice things about being autistic is we're, we're quite good at digging through lots of documentation, lots of video footage. <laughs> um, I don't think the police realized exactly what they were getting themselves into, to be fair. So right. we spent about probably about an hour in the square. Um, we'd actually tried to go up to the front outside Parliament, um, but the you know the force of the group of people was was such that you could actually lift your legs off the ground, and the crowd would actually hold you up. It was kind of amazing in some respects, um, and we could see you know the police swinging their batons. We could see people covered in blood coming back from the front. Um, so we pulled back. Um, we stood on, on Parliament Square, kind of watching, wondering what was happening, kind of trying to figure out what we would do next. And what we saw was a huge wave of people turning around from going to the front, going to Parliament Square, to going the exact opposite, down Horse Guards Parade. Um, and we, you know... Th- thought basically well you know they must be going somewhere let's let's follow them um it turns out that first of all there was a there was a police officer on a megaphone telling everyone that if you want to leave leave by the rear this is not a containment um what he actually meant was to loop all the way around parliament square and go out past past number 10 downing street which would have taken an entire, you know, horseshoe kind of walk around Parliament Square. Um, that that was not what happened. Everyone immediately just turned and headed down, uh, headed down the street uh, to a police cordon that was entirely unprepared and thought they were under a direct attack from a load of students who had purposefully kind of decided that that was going to be their weak point. Um. Honestly speaking, that was that was that was a huge misunderstanding of our level of tactics on that day. <laughs> Getting a group right. of students to do anything tactical at that point was was way beyond what was going to happen. Um, <laughs> but you know, and when we showed that footage to the officer who was in charge of the line outside Parliament Square, he was he was shocked because he knew just how much of a screw up had occurred. Yes, um, yeah. and this wasn't footage that the police had ever really seen because it was, it was footage from Sky News archive. Okay, odd footage that one of our one of our legal team had managed to just dig through and just pick at random. Almost, me and my brother end up being right at the front. The police step back. We end up moving, you know, being pushed forwards by by the crowd. Um, you can see Jody being dragged out of his wheelchair, kind of to to the you know, to the left of me, uh, by police officers. Um, 
And I'm kind of starting to kind of get the feeling of a level of overload, sensory overload at this point. Then the police line disappears. Uh, for all in, intents and purposes, it feels like it's absolutely disappeared. And I'm kind of walking around in no man's land. And we have, um, you know, the V for Vendetta Guy Fawkes masks. Yes. Yeah, we yes. have those on there because we thought it was funny. And we had a placard with Strength Through Unity uh, on it because, you know, it was funny. Um, yeah. And at this point, I'm, I actually stopped being able to hear. My sensory overload hasn't taken me to kind of the usual place. Just senses are just starting to st- shut down, and I'm I'm not thinking logically at all. Um, you can see, you know, in video footage, you can see a couple of officers coming and speaking to, to my brother and I, and me just not really noticing, and me just kind of walking forward to kind of almost leave the area, and I'm, I'm not sure quite how I was thinking at the time. Then this police officer on a horse comes over to us, um, and first of all, he grabs my brother's hat and throws it. Then he comes, my brother runs off to get his hat. Then he comes over to me and he grabs my my mask, which, first of all, is, is actually a criminal offense for, for an officer to do that. Uh, even if they have an order that you shouldn't be wearing a mask, they have to take, they have to arrest you and take you into the station before they can take that mask off. Otherwise, it's an offense for them to do it. So he grabs right. my mask, rips off my mask, ripping off my glasses. So I'm now totally blind. Um, I'm short sighted by by some degree, um, and throws those. Now I don't really realize what's happening, so I'm actually sweeping the floor with with uh, with my foot, trying to find where my glasses are. He then goes over to my brother and, and rips his mask off. My brother isn't blind as a bat as I am so he's he's actually okay with that um kind of safety wise um then the officer comes back to me wraps his hand in my hair because I have quite a long you know ponytail of hair he wraps it around his hand like two loops and tries to lift me up now at this point I'm kind of out of the game because you know my sensory overload has got to the point where, where I'm, I'm not really remembering much at all. Um, I'm not very cognizant at this point. Um, but he's trying to lift up somebody weighing about like 18 stone. And it turns out that this person, this PC cowling, who, you know, literally trains people on how to ride horses for the Met Police, or did at the time, since retired, okay. um, hadn't done his saddle upright. So all of a sudden, his wonderful horse, Annabelle, decides that she doesn't want to play this game and just starts gently moving away from me. Um, so he starts to slip and his saddle and slipping round. At this point, my brother comes in because um, he's been told by my parents to kind of look after us and, you know, kind of, you know, if I have any problems to kind of to look after each other. So he grabs me around the shoulder and kind of guides me away at this point. Um, and then kind of behind us, this police officer just falling off his horse. Now, the thing is, at this point, if you're if you're a police officer, you've just seen a police officer come off his horse. The general feeling is, first of all, that, that a police officer should know how to do up a saddle properly. Turns out maybe not. Um, and, and second of all, that, that while there are two people involved, they obviously pulled him off. 
So at this point, we get surrounded by several people, including uh, an SO-19 armed officer inspector who is shouting, these are the boys that pulled him off. And we are banned from about, I think it must have been like eight or nine different people, including from mounted officers. Uh, my brother hears a thud from my head from a, from a police officer cracking me over the head with a baton, uh, at which point he puts his arm up to kind of protect my head. Um, and at which point he gets, you know, such a crack that, that later on the police question whether that's a, that's a fracture or not. Um, we are then put down on the floor. I don't know about you, but when I'm kind of injured or ill or in that kind of state, I become even more honest and all of those kind of things that you put up as kind of like to kind of normalize your behavior, all of those, those kind of patterns that you use kind of fall away. Um, right. So immediately I was like, you know, I haven't done that, you know, uh, and a load of other things kind of tumble out of my mouth. And, you know, it's all about, you know, when you get to that point, the things that you fall back on are kind of like honesty and rule sets and how you're supposed to behave. And you're like, what's just happened kind of thing. Um, right, right. I'm also concussed at the time, quite concussed. Um, my brother's again trying to see if I'm okay. Um, we're moved over to a police van. Um, well, where the police fans are. Um, and I'm, you know, they've put me, because I had wrist problems at the time, quite serious wrist problems. They put the cuffs on loosely, you know, when I explained that, um, their comment was basically, you know, do anything, we'll tighten them up. But at the moment, you're not exactly a risk. Um, they can obviously see I'm a bit unwell. Um, and at one point, I'm like, I need to sit down. And they're like, well, you know, you, you better sit down before before you fall down, effectively. So I kneel down, kind of in that prone position, and then they're like, stand up, stand up, stand up, because they were worried it was going to look like an execution, effectively, with my head bowed, kneel, kneeling in front of a couple of police officers. Um, again, it's kind of like that optics thing, that when when you're kind of ill and kind of not thinking, you know, almost becomes kind of kind of funny and surreal, you know, looking back at it. Um, yeah, yeah, it must, it must have felt sort of like an... Like an out of body experience, almost. It was, and it got even more stranger because when they, instead of putting us in the usual cage vans, because they were they were going to take ages to come and pick us up, they put us in in one of the you know standard transit vans with, with standard seats and a couple of officers. Um, and me being so rules driven and and concussed and just full on hundred percent autistic, I look over to this police officer and ask him to put on my seatbelt. To which he looks at me as if I'm absolutely crazy. And then I, you know, absolutely reply with, well, it's the law, isn't it? To which he does up my seatbelt. And the thing is that there was absolutely no tone of sarcasm or anything in my voice. But you could just see from this police officer's face that he was like, I I've never had this happen before at all in my life. Um, and then again, you know, when he sits down, I'm like, aren't you going to put your seatbelt on? Um, and, and those are things that, you know, realistically, you just don't say to police officers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I apologize if I, I apologize. Um, 
when you when you said that about the, the seatbelt and the look on the officer's face, I did start sort of start chuckling just because of the Man, absurdity of it all. It's hilarious. I love it. I love it. It's like it's like the ultimate level of, of, of complete autistic shutdown of just going, Well, I've always been told to do this, therefore they're the police. I can't not have my seatbelt sit on sitting next to the police. <laughs> You know, it's just that that pure train of logic that that that, that, that like just is not going to leave you. Um, yes, yes. Uh, you know, and instead of kind of hiding that as, as we'd normally do and kind of modifying that, that was just like what fell out of my mouth. Um, at which point, my brother is like in the back, probably just sighing. Um, at, at, you know, <laughs> at that kind of statement. Um, in fact, I'm fairly sure he found it hilarious as well. Um, and um, you know, at this point, you know, we're we're being taken to the police station and I'm actually passing in and out of consciousness in the police van. Um the thing to realize is that the the Met Police is standard at the time, and I know this because we knew a Met Police officer and had had, had advice from him, was that anybody with a suspected head injury was to go immediately to hospital. Um and if anybody wonders why that is, it, it, it's because it can it can lead to death quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Alfie Meadows, who was also in that in that demonstration, had a police baton blow to the head and did almost die. If he had not made it into hospital uh, and to put this into contact, the police attempted to stop hit, stop the ambulance from going to hospital because it was a hospital that was for police officers, not for protesters. Then it, it, then he would have died. Um, and quite frankly, if that police baton blow had hit me in the wrong place, I could have been there with him. Um, and that's that's something that does kind of weigh in weigh in how we feel about some of this, um, as I'm sure you can imagine. So, of course. And when I get to the police station, I literally am struggling to stand up, so they actually get me a seat for booking in, which is not common at all. Um, I, you know, one of the things that when you go to a protest is sometimes you get a bust card. So me and my brother had had these cards that tell us, first of all, to say no comment uh, when asked questions by the police without you, without your lawyer present, which is standard piece of advice. I'd definitely say follow. Um, and we'd of course follow that. In fact, I've managed to, f- I'd managed to follow that while passing in and out of consciousness in the police van, which I'm rather pleased about. Um, but the other thing it gives you is a lawyer who will know and understand the issues, you know, where you've been arrested. So they'll been pre-briefed by an organization who's organizing the event or, uh, or protest or um, a supporting organization. And there are several of those like Green and Black Cross who, who help with that. So we got a really good law firm. Um, now, they went above and beyond. Um, first of all, they organized a solicitor to come to us who actually used to be a special needs teacher, which is, you know, verging on miraculous for me to get yeah, somebody that's, that competent. That's that's genuinely surprising to hear. Um, she was she was absolutely amazing. Not only did did she immediately, you know, actually take my brother aside first and check if there were anything 
that would cause me sensory issues with you know what she was wearing, for example. Um, so she had a red scarf on, and I was uh, still kind of am quite reactive to the color red. So she immediately took that off. You know, kind of like literally the the best advocate you can think of for that. Um, but she also tried to get get me access to what's called an appropriate adult, and this is something that anybody who has autism should be immediately requesting. Um, an appropriate adult is basically somebody who is there to help you understand, um, to advocate you for you in a non-legal way. So if you need breaks, to be able to tell the police that that you know you need a break, you need to stop. Um, to be able to you know help you understand the process. I I'd argue that that the process is so backwards and so closed that everyone should have an appropriate adult autistic or not you know young or old um mm-hmm. and I, I say that as somebody who who's gone through parts of a law degree but the thing was that the police illegally denied us access to an appropriate adult and the thing is that they didn't even have to call somebody out we'd actually organized for a family friend who was again a special needs teacher who knew us fairly well to literally she was literally sitting in the station in the in the waiting room first of all my brother was under was under 16 and second of all that i'd been seen by the fme which is basically a gp in the police station and in the 5 minutes that he'd seen me first of all he felt my head for a bump to see if i'd i'd had any problems with my head which is is really not the way you do that okay and second of all, in that time, I mean, he must he must be one hell of an expert for this. He de-diagnosed me of autism. Oh, excuse me. Could you repeat that again? Yeah, he he declared that I didn't have autism. Which which I mean, for something that I went through months of of time with with professionals to kind of get a diagnosis in the first point, uh, I had you know that's. That's one hell of a statement in like fifteen minutes. Um, honestly, if it if it had been my choice, I I would have literally gone to the GMC about him because um, he failed his duty of care quite significantly. Um, in some respects, this is this is why having the right solicitor is so important. Though, um, while the police have apologized for that and changed significantly their behaviour to kind of work on the basis that if you ask for an appropriate adult, you should probably just get one. Yes. Having having a solicitor that you know has some experience in autism and they exist in criminal law. Um I can I could name a couple of firms in Manchester who who have really good people for 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 autism. Then you know you need that person to be able to advocate for you and be able to help you get that support and that requirement, you know the support that's going to give you the ability to understand proceedings, understand what you're doing and work with your solicitor to come to the best conclusion. It it is kind of amazing that that was the response, but honestly, in some respects that wasn't particularly uncommon. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's that's one of the things that when you walk into a police station as somebody with autism, as somebody with impairments, um, 
you know, you need to consider that first of all, you're walking into an adversarial position where anything you say can be taken against you. Right. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you know, and you're walking into a, into an entire situation where you don't know the rules, you don't know the process, you don't know what they can do, what they can't do. And that's what terrifies me with a load of people who, who walk into police stations without a solicitor, without an appropriate adult, without any support going into that system. It's It's the fastest way to get into trouble, you know, even before kind of any incident occurs. So yeah, going through that, we then had interviews, which were what we call no comment interviews, where you just say no comment over and over again. Um, then we were, well, basically my mother was told that, that she didn't have to come and get us. They just leave us outside and we could find our own way home from London. Um, my mother knowing how distressed we were literally like drove down. And this is after her coming into the UK from Holland at the time, from a business meeting, immediately drove down to London to pick us up and drive us back home that night about three o'clock in the morning. Except because of my, my brother's wrist, which hadn't been x-rayed, even though the police had said they would, we, we went to the local hospital, had that x-ray. Thankfully, it wasn't broken, um, and then went home. And the first thing that we did when we got home was we opened our laptops um, because we are a family of nerds quite honestly. <laughs> right. And we did what our lawyers did suggested. So first of all, we took pictures of any of the injuries that we had from police patterns, which were colorful. Um, then we wrote our statements, got them off. And then we started to troll YouTube. Um, because the wonderful thing about being the first arrests in a major protest is that there are lots of cameras on you. Right. And that means that, you know, we got a load of data. We got a load of video footage, some of which turned out to be useful to us, some of which didn't. Um, and that was the wonderful thing. You know, I, I, I'm, you know, blessed with the ability to sit in front of YouTube and troll through hundreds of search pages without twitching too much. Um, okay. Which, you know, is, is, somewhat of a useful trait at that point um again it's it's one of those things if you have a group a family who are who have some autistic traits then being put in this position as long as you can all work together and pull together you know i taught my mum video editing because it was something that we could do um you know we went through hours and hours of footage we went through uh, police statements forensically because we have that mindset to be able to do it, to be able to take that time and to be able to get a little bit more obsessive than, than some other people might want to. Right. Mm -hmm. The downside to this is that basically when you're going through this process, you are going through a load of trauma, um, and reliving parts of trauma. I I couldn't watch Mm -hmm. some of the video footage without literally feeling like I was going to vomit. Um, yeah, because that's, that's one of the things that many of us with, with autism struggle with. We, we struggle to kind of deal with some of that, 
um, some of that trauma and be able to process it in the way that a lot of other people might do so easier. Um, right. Yes. And that's that's kind of one of the one of the problems with with that interactions with police. As soon as you've you've got that inbuilt level of trauma and you can't deal with it, then if you've got stop and search once, then is that going to be making you more aware the next time you're walking past an officer? Are they going to notice that? And is it again going to cause that spiral again? Um, mm-hmm. You know, how are you going to feel in that next time in that next you know confrontation? Um, and that's that's something that that still concerns me to this day. You know, when I'm put in a room with with when I see officers in in body armor, that immediately puts me on edge, and it will probably do for quite a long yeah. time. Yeah, I I agree with that because I remember one time I had, I think I must have made the journey down to Holborn, and I purposefully avoided getting on the same carriage as two officers because I remember they had they were equipped with firearms on them because it just set off something in me that just felt extremely worried about what was going on. That very almost animalistic, I do not want to be here. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do not want to be in this room with them. And it, it almost puts you in kind of a fight or flight. Um, but kind of just before that stage of where you just kind of, you've got that anxiety level, you've you've got that adrenaline starting to flow. And that's something that, that again, is quite difficult to kind of, I found quite difficult to control, um, and that that's difficult when you're when you're spending time working with officers on training, and when you're when you're trying to improve the situation as a whole. Um, it, it puts you on edge, and it kind of makes it more difficult to kind of process as a long run. Um, eventually, we got called in for. A second interview. Um, this time, the second interview was actually done by murder and anti-terror officers. Um, okay. Oh yeah, we again. You know, we aim high as a family. Um, <laughs> these officers again challenged the fact that I wasn't autistic. Um, I didn't need glasses to see. Um, did everything they could, including denying me access to medication. Uh, at one point, literally every nasty trick that they could do with the appropriate adult that was sitting there, which was my mother in the room. Um, this is where I joke that literally that that changed my mother from being a literal conservative voter who thought the police had just got it wrong to rapidly understanding that the police weren't, you know, the angels that, that they protest that they are. Um, yes, yes. She she went literally in in one day from a from a conservative voter to, at very least, you know, Labour, if not possibly further down the spectrum. Um, it gave her a very, very big change in kind of understanding of of how the police work. Um, right, especially from the, from that you know, sitting there across the table from them in that very adversarial perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is that they try everything they can to kind of rile you up. Um, they try asking asking ridiculous things. They try all those things because they want to get a reaction. Um, 
and the the best thing is to kind of really close down and follow your lawyer's advice on exactly what you say. Um, because that that's their job is to literally advise you through this process and to work with your appropriate adult to kind of use their support in any way that you can. If you need a break, don't be afraid to take it. Um, you know, if you need things to, to calm down a bit, then absolutely. Um, that that's something that, that your lawyer and your appropriate adult are there for. Um, afterwards, I was then charged with violent disorder, which is one down from riot, um, which carries a sentence of five years in prison in, uh, I believe it's a category A prison, which is right up there, um, and a potentially unlimited fine. Me and my brother were both charged, uh, and we were given uh, bail conditions that required us not to enter the city of Westminster was. Now, the interesting thing was that no police officer, no custody sergeant or anyone else within the police force could actually define where the boundaries of the city of Westminster were. So, you know, I got answers such as not big enough that you can't avoid it. Um, Google it. That was that was a fun one. Uh, and you'll know it when you come out of the tube station, it says City of Westminster on one of the road signs, your broken bail conditions. I don't know about you, but that, that kind of, you know, how, how a police officer can put conditions on, on bail that they literally can't understand or define. Yeah, I'm... I'm quite frankly stunned by this. I mean, the intent, as one of the officers said, well, that'll stop you protesting, won't it? It was punitive. And he, and pardon me for interrupting, and he said that directly to yeah, you? Yeah, he did. It was designed to stop protest, which is actually illegal. But, you know, good luck ever, you know, getting very far with that. To be honest, the number right. of the number of offences committed by officers during all of this is is actually quite high. Sorry to interrupt, but it's just hearing your story in terms of what you've said so far. I I'm just thinking in my in my instance, being a Black Caribbean person, and for many people, it feels like even though they're aware of the, like, sometimes, as they say, like, say, the overreaches or just the the thing that the nasty tricks that the police will do in order to try and have things tip in their favour. Um, I feel like a lot of people, sort of, especially in terms of autistic people, as you were talking about with needing a responsible adult or certain things, they might they're probably not aware or being made aware of any of these things until maybe smack bang in the moment or after the fact when the dust has been settled because a couple of the things you've mentioned i'll be honest i haven't heard about them before in regard to dealing with officers for any kind of incident i mean an appropriate adult is is something that there needs to be an awareness of um and that needs to be raised within within the broader community um and that is that is a challenge anyway and of course you're going to get good appropriate adults and bad ones um 
but no, the the entire system is closed until until you start to go into it. Um, and the thing is, I don't think there's any intention for it to be. I mean, we've all seen enough crime dramas over the years, so we have we have some mm-hmm. vague recollection that it exists, um, and we have some vague recollection that that nasty tactics are used, but it's only for the bad people. Um, yes. You know, uh, I don't. I don't think anybody thinks about it too deeply because if they think about it too deeply, they'd have to confront the fact that mistakes happen and that they could be a mistake. Right. And that's that's especially for somebody who comes from you know where I come from. I I come from from Cheshire. You know, the land of of middle class stockbroker belt. Um. You know, we're a commuter town to to London. You know that kind of people have never had a negative interaction with the police to some extent. They've never had that experience. All they've seen is, you know, the police in a bad position on TV, where you know, where they've arrested somebody and you know, or a police officer has died, or you know, all those kind of things. They don't have that other interaction. Mm-hmm. Um. And that's that's a human thing. We don't we don't want to confront almost our own morality and mortality uh, in that lens. It's a very yes, uncomfortable yes. thing to do. Uh, I mean, you yourself in the position oh. that you are societally, you know, have had to confront that in a way that is, quite frankly, not fair. You know. Mm-hmm. It, you shouldn't have to confront confront that reality, especially not at a young age. But you know, in some respects, we all need to confront the fact that that we need to consider how we would like to be treated by the police as innocent mm-hmm. as well as guilty, because mistakes happen. Of course, and the police yes. don't just arrest people for offences. They take people in for mental health reasons or for, you know, disturbing the peace and for things that aren't necessarily and shouldn't be considered, you know, major issues that shouldn't be dealt with harshly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I'm going to say is here, we got an invite to a group uh, that was organized by an activist group uh, who now go by the initials ACAB but were LDMG at the time. Uh, And we got that through our lawyers, which was kind of an unusual thing. And it was for a defendant's group. And through this, first of all, we met Alfie, but we also met a load of older activists. Now, my mum being still a little bit on the the nervous conservative side, um, was kind of unsure Mm -hmm. about this. I'd known a couple of activists in Manchester, so I was a bit more, you know, a, it's sent through our lawyers. What can it hurt? Um, and B, you know, they've probably been arrested before. We should probably listen to them. Um, and this was probably the wisest thing that we we did um, because it gave us a support. Um, and these support support organisations do exist in the activist realm, but there are also other ones outside as well. And what first of all, what they provided was support in court to know the process, to know what we're going through, to help us talk with lawyers, um, and 
also in this case, which is probably a bit rarer and, and more towards the activist side, um, a place to sleep, you know, when you're going to London for, for court the next day. Because um, you can imagine, you know, if you're going down to London each time, you've got three of you, you have to rent out a room. It can get expensive really quickly. Mm-hmm. Very, um, true. Very true. And the thing is, you can't claim that back anymore. All of your expenses, even if you're found not guilty, are your own. Right. Um, and this is what we found for for some of the young people. That can that can put you in a really nasty position really quickly. Really nasty position financially. Um, mm-hmm. But they were able to guide us through some of this process. Um, and if you know, if you go into court and you see that there are flyers for organizations that are going to help you through that process that's something i would definitely advise and if you're at a protest then i'd definitely look green green and black cross up uh and acab um okay again it's those kind of support networks and you know advocacy networks which help you kind of understand what you're doing because the lawyers have done it a thousand times before and they kind of almost reflexively expect you to kind of know your place in the in the dance. Um, so in some respects, it's like autism in, in, in school to begin with. You know, you're, you're expected to know exactly how it works um, and kind of have to figure it out. But with somebody to guide you, it kind of reduces that stress. Yes, yes. Um, and that kind of really helps. The other thing I would say with regards to your lawyers is we had our mum involved, which is really fantastic in some respects because she's very professional, she's a business person, and she's not autistic, which which does to some extent help with that communication. But in others, and I'm sure you know many of us have had this, where a professional immediately kind of reflexes to talking to your parent rather than talking to you. Yes, yes. And your parents starts talking for you instead of with you. Um, and that's something that I do think as a community we have to kind of work to combat. And I've I've seen this from not just lawyers, but also from other professionals where if your parent is there, then, then they will default to talking to the parent. And that's okay. really harmful because in our case, we end up having two trials. Um, a first trial and then and then a retrial due to jury issues. And one of the key things that I said was, first of all, we need to draw out the narrative because people work on stories. If you do not give give the, the jury a, a real story, a narrative on what happened, then it makes it far more difficult for them to understand where you are and where you're going. Um, second of all, that we needed those command logs. And not only did we need command logs, we needed the unredacted ones. The thing is that while our second trial, we were a lot stronger regardless um, because of a number of things that I'll go into later, the key points that that made us so strong as well were, were simply the fact that we had that information from that command logs from the helicopter footage that I referred to before but also that we built a story on what had happened. We gave we gave them a narrative. We gave them maps. We gave them footage in such a way that they could digest it as a story. But 
had the lawyers and had I not convinced my mum and the lawyers to do that in the second second trial, it would have been a harder fight. I'm not saying that we wouldn't have won anyway. But that, you know, kind of talking the parents talking for you, I think is is problematic and it's something that, that's almost infantilizing. Um and brings me a little bit of concern for when it happens. With what you've said there, you've kind of asked one of my questions, which I wanted to ask was uh, if you had any tips for people who maybe need a solicitor or or somebody to represent them after being arrested. But what do you think the police could do better when engaging with autistic people? That's that's a big question. Um, first of all, I'd like them to have more training. I would like them to have more training, not only from a police officer's standpoint, uh, but also, quite frankly, from call handlers, from command and control. So they can like start that interaction in a way that, that really functions um, and kind of hopefully minimize the interactions that the police have to begin with. My second step would be to listen to the, to the family members. There have been a number of incidents with the police where the police have escalated, whereas the family members have been trying to give them information to kind of stop that escalation, stop the problem growing into something bigger, uh, and to allow the police to kind of find a solution that wasn't so so overwrought. And if I'm honest, if that happened in some of the cases that I know of, then they wouldn't have been sued repeatedly. You know, it, it's not even the fact that, that they've caused a huge load of issues, but but this has got bad enough that lawyers have had to get involved against the police, even where there hasn't been an arrest. Um, all because they didn't stop, take a minute, listen to the family, and engage in, in a way that, that's actually community-focused and focused on helping the person in the situation. Right. As for us... I think it's incredibly difficult for them to immediately understand that somebody's autistic by sight. Um, I also think that it is incredibly difficult for us to say that we're autistic to a police officer. And I can see pros and cons on that in numerous different ways, um, which is why... You know, I did a custody sweep because I had to. I was non-functional and I needed support. Um, but on the street, if I was dealing with an officer face-to-face, it wouldn't be the first thing out of my mouth. Um, right. And it's kind of difficult to kind of get the awareness of when you should be, when you should be making that call. And I'm not sure that's something that that either of us can kind of either yourself or the officer can kind of make a judgment call on immediately. Um, I do think if, if somebody gets in autistic distress quite a lot, then things like the police cards are useful to at least allow somebody who is, who is not functionally verbal at the time to communicate. Uh Um, And I would, I would like the police to be even more aware of those and aware of what they mean as well. That's a biggie. Uh 
But on the other side, the last thing I want is for us all to have to carry an ID card. If you know what I mean. Yes. Um, yes. Because that has that has abuse written all over it in some respects. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing to realize is that, you know, when we're talking about the police's response to um, to things like terrorism, uh, and things like radicalization, there have been reports um, and journal articles around autism and radicalization pointing to the fact that we're more likely to be a potential targets for radicalization. And right, okay, to flag with your local police officer that you're autistic, um, or flag with somebody who is part of the prevent requirements that you're autistic. As somebody who had interesting special interests as a teenager, as I think we all had, that's something that I I would feel incredibly, incredibly awkward about. And I wouldn't do it. Certainly not as a teenager, I wouldn't do it. Um, Yeah, I can... I can definitely understand that. Yes. You know, how many how many autistics do we know of who have an interest in trains? Um and how easily could that be spun as, you know, an interest in infrastructure? National yeah. infrastructure? Um or you know, or you search the wrong thing, because let's be honest, how many of us have totally gone down weird rabbit holes before? Google is a wonderful tool, but dear goodness, the things you can end up searching. Um so from that perspective, again, I, you know, pointing out yourself and labeling yourself to a police officer who's going to be in your area for a long time as autistic and making that known is something I would feel incredibly uncomfortable about. Um, mm-hmm. Very understandable. I, I do it with, with forces who aren't in Cheshire, and I'm kind of happy to do that. Um, and I do it with, with other people, you know, with training but mm-hmm. if it was my local police officers i would be a lot more reticent um okay. and that, that's just somebody who has been through that system that's just somebody who you know who knows how to read legislation who has you know who's gone through these experiences and has who has somebody in their family who works for the police um mm-hmm. You know, who has people who who they do chat to who who are police officers and have been police officers. Um, there is a point where you shouldn't make yourself a target in some respects, and that's terrible to say. It's kind of horrific to even have to think about. But you know, the last thing that any of us wants is to kind of be put on a radar and put under greater suspicion than we need to be. It's taking a kind of a dark route, hasn't it? <laughs> It it has, but I feel in some ways in addressing in addressing a topic like this, you you kind of have to because otherwise you're not really getting to the heart of the the heart of the issue. And this is regarding uh, you know this is regarding the law itself, you know. So I mean, the thing is with the law, there are, there are a huge number of issues around autism. One of the things that I did have, which really helps when when we went went to court, is that we had um, an expert in autism, um, and she was able to explain how how we would function in court, 
So things like, um, you know, not necessarily reacting in the same in the same way that somebody normally would to examination, um, not necessarily looking at people in the eyes, all of those kind of things. Um, and that's something that I would advise anyone to get because anything that that helps the jury understand who you are and personifies you and personifies your differences helps. But the thing is that that can't be taken into account strictly by the jury with regards to what happened. Um, okay. We have something called the reasonable man standard in the UK. Have you heard of the reasonable man? I haven't, no. So the reasonable man is the man on the Clapham omnibus, um, which is still a bus route that actually runs, just not called the Clapham omnibus. And it, it, he's a fictional man. He's supposed to take the le- the reasonable and you know carefully considered actions, um, and he is the standard that you're held against. Now the thing is that there's also a bit of classism tied up in this because that route originally was stockbroker, was doctors, and that kind of thing. So there was kind of an expectation of somebody who had a certain level of education. Um, okay, and had a certain level of understanding, um, and this was what was defined as reasonable in inverted commas. Um, and this is the person that everyone is judged against. So when you're asked, you know, for self-defense, was this a reasonable action? You're being judged against what is reasonable to this to this standard of this man who is who is effectively the jury pool. Now, the thing is that how, what we think is reasonable from our experiences and how our minds work and how we function and how something like, you know, a sensory overload functions is not necessarily going to be that reasonable standard. The same for somebody who um, who has a psychosocial disability their experience mm-hmm. of the world is going to be different. And the thing is that that is not taken into account. So our experiences, we are held up to the same standard as somebody, you know, who is not impaired in the ways that we are, who does not have our experiences, who does not have our understanding. Um, without our ability to kind of challenge that and question it, which is something that, that does concern me. Um, how can we have mens rea, which is the idea that that there's a mental element to a crime, if you're just going to use, you know, an imaginary stand-in for what's reasonable? Yes. You've, yes. You've removed a level of um of sympathy from the jury that I don't think is healthy, um, and I think is is actually kind of lazy it means the jury doesn't have to put itself in your shoes and it doesn't have to understand you as a person which which i think is you know i said lazy and kind of unsympathetic yeah 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 it it makes it it makes it uneven for for those who like there's people who probably going into there have no idea about this standard 
your explanation has added a lot to it. Also, um, bit of a side note, but uh, just to let listeners know that the Autistic Empire will be having its own selection of alert cards in just for the sort of highly intense or highly stressful situations. So they will be coming out at some point very soon. Those cards are something you can then use and you can choose to use. And anything that mm-hmm. that makes a party who is getting confrontational stop for a minute, consider something, take a breath and think, is something that can help in de-escalation. So, as mm-hmm. I said, I wouldn't use it all the time, but it, it is something that, that I have considered before um, and that I have considered as, as being useful for a number of people. Um Right. The, my only issue at the moment is the fact there is no standard for the police being educated around them. Yeah. And that that's something that we need to work to change and kind of broaden. I would absolutely agree with you on that. There needs to be some kind of uh, standard in place that needs to be put forward to educating the police on these kind of issues. I mean, even if it's, you know, a day of training, it would be an improvement. On that note, because I think this has been a splendid discussion and a splendid, you know, on a topic that really needs addressing, it's uh, would it's all right to end it here, if that's okay? Yep, not a problem. Chris, thank you for coming on. I think I would genuinely love to have you back on the podcast to talk about this another time, because I feel there's even more avenues and standards that some people probably aren't aware of that would probably that would be worth bringing up definitely i mean there are, there's always something interesting to explore look for this episode on all the usual sources including the audible autism website until next time listeners thank you for listening <laughs>